0: Uh, This is actually week five of the series, the the teaching series that we've been working through. Um, We're going to go through the entire book of Mark, in fact, and it'll take us up through till about mid August. And um, it's going to be quite fun. We've entitled the series Mightier Than I, based on um, John the Baptist's declaration of who Jesus is. As he introduced the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, when Jesus came on the scene. John the Baptist, the one who Jesus said is, was greater than any man ever born of women to live. And then when John saw Jesus, he said, this is the Messiah. He is, he is the one who is mightier than I. And it's Mark's way of saying, get ready. This is the story of how God became king. This is the story of Jesus The Messiah. He is the mightier one. He is mightier than I. Um, Today, this is actually week five. We're going to start in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And then we're going to go all the way up through chapter 3, verse 6. So we're we're covering substantial chunks as we go along. Here we go. Mark 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, said to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then, in that day, they will fast. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and, the, and a worse tear is made. And No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. It's a bit of an odd metaphor. Verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to Jesus... Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, that is the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, the followers of Herod, against him, how they might destroy Jesus. So it begins with Jesus and his disciples walking through a field of grain on the Sabbath, probably a Saturday afternoon. And Apparently the disciples, Jesus' followers, they're hungry, so they pick little heads off the, the grain, and they sort of crush them in their hands. They harvest the grain in their hands, and they, they eat a bit of grain. The Pharisees are watching, and they're like, whoa, hang on a second. Uh, the disciples of John as well are watching, um, and they're like, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Of course, I skip the part about uh, the disciples of John and the Pharisees, both wondering why Jesus' disciples don't fast. Why don't they observe the traditions? And he makes this uh, comment about how, well, sure, fasting's great, but not when it's time for celebration. Fasting is reserved for mourning and repentance. But now the bridegroom is is with you. This is a time for celebration. And then he tells uh, a parable, if you will, sort of applies this metaphor, and he begins to allude to something new. And he says, look, you don't sew new cloth on old cloth, otherwise it will shrink and, and it will tear both the cloths and be worse. So you don't put new wine in the old wineskin, otherwise the, the skin will burst and you lose the wine. Then the grain field, and then the synagogue, it's the Sabbath day again, and there's a man there with a withered hand. He's, a, he's probably something like this, and Jesus notices him. I would imagine the man probably made himself visible at this point. I think it's safe to assume that, that people have heard the rumors about Jesus They know that this is the rabbi who is healing and casting out demons. Only this time, the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're watching Jesus, waiting to see what he'll do so that they might have an opportunity to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. Of course, Jesus, this time, he asks them the question. You tell me. What's better? What's lawful? What's right to preserve life or to let someone die to save or to kill to heal or to just let the man suffer on the sabbath they remain silent they don't answer and so jesus with anger and grief in his heart tells the man stretch out your hand and he's healed of course at that point the pharisees they're now enraged They cannot believe the audacity of Jesus, this rabbi, who would dare to break the Sabbath law and heal on the Sabbath. So what do we make of all of that? The stories are actually quite connected. I sort of made the point last week that it's quite important that we're we're trying to take relatively decent-sized chunks of Scripture at a time, because they're, they're all meant to sort of uh, coincide. What it, let's begin with the wineskin and the shrunk cloth and the fasting and that little little incident. Um, Jesus is clearly alluding to something new. Uh, the, 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 the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist, which is interesting to note... Sort of both sides of the spectrum, the the opposing parties, the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees, they did not get along. But they both noticed that during the time of traditional fasting, Jesus' disciples were not. And I think it's safe to say the tone was probably relatively neutral. This is not just the Pharisees looking for another opportunity to bash Rabbi Jesus because he's encroaching upon their, their turf, as it were. The disciples of John and the disciples of Pharisees, why don't you fast? And he says, well, good question. Why does one fast? Again, it's, uh, it's, it's something that you would do as an outward expression of mourning, of repentance. He says, this is not a time for that. The bridegroom is among you. Something new is about to happen. A wedding is about to transpire. This this is a time for celebration. Something new is about to be established. And Then you know he goes on to apply the metaphor: new wine, fresh cloth. What is he talking about? What do you think? He doesn't really say, does he? Sort of, sort of leaves it hanging. Or rather, Mark, our storyteller, he just leaves it hanging. What he does do is goes on to then describe these two incidents that follow. Sort of qualifies the, uh, the Jesus's alluding to the new thing by then describing these events that follow. It's the Sabbath. His disciples are walking through the field of grain. Why are they harvesting heads of grain in their hands? Why are they working on the Sabbath? It's not lawful. They're offended. How does Jesus respond? He says, Have you not read? Have you not read? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees. I mean, it's pretty cheeky. Pretty cheeky. Have you not read? Oh, yeah, they've read. They've read and read and read. They've written commentaries. They've memorized. They know all the every possible translation. They've read. They know 1 Samuel 21 for sure. The story of King David, who went into the house of God, was starving, had his men with him. They needed food. And the high priest offered the bread of the presence the bread that's only lawful for the high priest to eat. And Jesus says, "So what do you say about that?" He's pointing out the flaw in their logic. He's actually saying, "Look, you're you're mistaken. You're mistaken. You've misunderstood the law." probably worth noting that um, you, can, you can look for yourself in the Old Testament, but there is no um, specific rule about whether or not you can, quote-unquote, harvest grain in your hand to eat a couple of nuggets of, of grain on the Sabbath. It says to don't do work, and some other sort of specifics attached to that. But the Pharisees, of course, they were, I would argue, obsessed with making sure that no work was done on the Sabbath. And Jesus simply said, you are, you've misunderstood the law. You're wrong. You're wrong. Oh, I know you've read it. You've memorized it, no doubt. And you, you've misunderstood the point. he goes on to make the very bold, also quite critical, statement that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he said the Sabbath was not made, uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man. This is a gift, a good thing given to us from God to bless us, to help us, to lead us into a right, good, healthy, trusting relationship with God. Only the Pharisees... Um, They've confused the point. Then he goes to the synagogue. Um, it's obviously a Saturday. Uh, sun has not gone down yet, so legally, no work is to be done. And there's the man with the withered hand. You can once again imagine the tension. What's he going to do? He, he, could have, he could have just maybe waited, waited till the sun went down. If we back up a chapter, you might recall um, when Jesus was in the house of Peter's mother-in-law, and uh, he had healed her, and then later on it said, after the sun set, many others came to the house. That was on the Sabbath. Remember, they had been in the synagogue earlier that day cast out a demon. Then he went to Peter's mother-in-law's house and... Mark tells us explicitly that after sundown, meaning after the Sabbath had ended, then people came to Jesus and healed them. He could have just waited a few hours and then healed the man with the withered hand, but he knew there was an opportunity. He knew that the the Pharisees, the experts of the law, the religious elite, he knew what was going on in their hearts. And it says that he was angry. He was angry and he was even grieved at the hardness of their hearts. What does he do then? Instead of using the scriptures, instead of quoting from the scriptures or appealing to another example to show them the fallacy in their logic, this time he goes straight for the jugular. And he actually challenges the state of their hearts. He says, let me ask you this. Is it better that a man should die or live on the Sabbath? Well, Bit of a trick question, really, isn't it? Now, within rabbinic tradition, um, you may have heard the word like Mishnah or the Talmud. The Mishnah would have been like the interpretation of Torah... The Talmud would have been like the interpretation of the interpretation. And these guys were, they were in it head deep. They, they were determined to do the law right. And so they had all these sort of like little nuances and details and traditions within the traditions to make sure that no work was being done. And if something was going to be done, there was like a clause or an exception. And so they have these traditions within the traditions that would allow them to do things like, hey, if your beast of burden is dying in a pit, it's okay to get them out. Okay? If life is at stake, then there is an exception to the rule. You can appeal to the exception and pull out your animal. Because heck, that's going to cost you money in the long run. And so Jesus is saying, "Hmm, how interesting, how interesting. There's an exception for your oxen, let's say, if it's dying or if it's suffering. There was even a clause that said if your animal was dehydrated, you can untie them and lead them to water. Better that they not suffer. In which case there would be a quote unquote exception to the rule. And Jesus says, if you'll do it for your animal, if you'll do it for your beast of burden, if it's that important for your property, how much more important than this poor man who's suffering right before your eyes. He's pointing out the hypocrisy, the hardness of their hearts. And what do they say? Nothing, nothing. They've been called out. And so Jesus heals the man, the Pharisees leave deciding to conspire with their enemies the Herodians these are the guys who are in cahoots with Herod Herod's a bad guy Herod's a super bad guy they would rather conspire with their enemy to destroy Jesus than to celebrate this good work that God had done Isn't that sick? How does that happen? The problem of the Pharisees was that they had focused on the mechanical, ritualistic aspects of the Sabbath, and in so doing, failed to meet its essence which is mercy and compassion. They lingered long over the letter of the law, but missed the spirit. Now the same story is told in the gospel of Matthew. He elaborates a little bit. Matthew chapter 12. He says, um, Jesus said to the, the Pharisees, have you not read in the law? And he recounts the story of of, of David and his followers, that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you've known what this means, and then he quotes to them, Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire compassion or mercy and not sacrifice. If you would understand that, you would have not have condemned the innocent for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. If you'd understood what Hosea meant a long time ago when he said the Lord desires mercy or steadfast love, not just sacrifice, and their sacrifice isn't talking about like sacrificial love, it's talking about religious rote, it's talking about being radically committed to the animal sacrificial system, the cultist sacrificial system doing everything just right, doing all, paying your dues, doing your religious observances, paying very, very close attention to the letter of the law, getting it just right, only not realizing that God's not interested in our perfection. He's interested in the state of our hearts. Have we learned the lesson of compassion, and mercy or are we more concerned with simply getting it right getting it right for whose benefit exactly we mustn't be too hard on the Pharisees right i mean they were they were zealous They were earnest. I mean, to be fair, it was only about 100 years prior to this point um, that the the Maccabean Revolution had taken place. And you know what happened after that? Um, You know a little bit about the history. Yeah, the Romans came in, and they slaughtered the Jews. In fact, apparently what happened was uh, 1,000-some-odd Jews were slaughtered on the Sabbath because they were so determined to break the Sabbath that they refused to defend themselves. And so the Romans came in like, well, this is, this is easy. We should plan all of our battles on Saturday afternoons. And they slaughtered the Jews. So they were, this was a big deal. Okay, this was, they weren't just being like um, petty. They needed to get this right. For a couple of reasons. One, because it wasn't a really good thing that the Romans came in and just slaughtered them the way they did about a hundred years prior, but also because it wasn't that long ago that they had been exiled to Babylon because they failed to honor God, to fear God and to keep his commandments. That's how they ended up getting kicked out of the land in the first place. So them obeying the law. Fearing God and obeying his commandments it was like a big deal. A lot was at stake. So I think it's fair to say that at least some of these Pharisees, like they had relatively fair intentions. Like they really wanted to get it right. Got to give them some credit for that. But in their zeal, in their determination to make sure they, they obeyed the letter of the law just right, I mean, perfectly. They had lost the plot. We, we talk about this quite a bit. This is a reoccurring theme in the story of God. What is God really after? Does he want it just a bunch of robots obeying his every edict? Or is he looking to redeem a people? Is he looking to adopt sons and daughters? into his family, that we might come home and experience real relationship with our maker, with our God. But we do have a tendency, sometimes even in our zeal, sometimes even in our fair intentions, to lose the plot. And I would argue that this is, at least at some level, what we see happening with the Pharisees. Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. I love what um, he says in John chapter five. There's a lot of parallels between the gospels. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them that you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me that you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. There's something wrong with their hearts. They were diligently searching the scriptures, thinking that surely this is the perfect law of God. Correct. In God's word, we find eternal life. And they were searching diligently, 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 but they missed their Messiah because they did not have the love of God in their heart. Jesus' words. What is, does that not bother? Does that bother anyone? That makes me slightly nervous. Like, oh goodness, like, I'm in seminary right now. Like, God help me. God help me not miss the point. God help us all. What was the new thing? The new wine? The new unshrunk cloth? What was that? Was it doing away with the law? I don't think so. Now... I don't think so. Did Jesus ever say, guys, 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 chill with the Sabbath? No. That would have, I mean, that would have been Jesus, Jesus. If Jesus had broken the law, then he would not have been without sin. No, Jesus kept the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. Was he talking about doing away with the law? I would say not exactly. Or I would put it that way. Not exactly. Is it still a sin to murder, lie, steal, commit adultery? Yeah. For sure. What about the fourth commandment? Ten Commandments. What's, do you guys remember number four? I think it's number four. Honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. It's right up there with like, don't murder and lying. Uh, what do we do with that? You guys realize it's not Saturday, right? We're not, you know, there's like all these weird sex and I'm trying to be rude, but uh, Sabbatarians. Um, certain, I, I suppose, brothers and sisters within Christendom who believe wholeheartedly that luckily if you are Sabbathing on any day other than the Sabbath, i.e. Saturday, the seventh day, um, then you're breaking the fourth commandment. You're in major breach of God's law. Is that, is that what we believe? No, no, definitely not. no. What did what did Jesus do that was so new that affected everything about the way we understand and apply God's good and perfect law? Okay, we're going I'm I'm kind of teasing this out a little bit, but we're about to we're about to dive deep. Okay, bear with me. Bear with me. It's an issue of motivation. Okay, God's people constantly fail failed to uphold the stipulations of the law. Eventually, what the law did do was to help people see just how much we really need God. Not as opposed to the law teaching us how to love, but in addition to that, we realized, like, I can't actually do this. Only God himself seemed actually capable of keeping God's law. He did it himself. He did it for us. And yet he doesn't abolish the law. He doesn't do away with the law. But he gives us a heart that affects the way we see, understand, and apply God's word. This is the new thing that Jesus is alluding to. Um, It's what Jeremiah spoke of. A long time ago. You guys know Jeremiah 31, 31? This is one you must highlight in your Bible if you've not done so already. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What covenant is that? That's the Mosaic covenant. Not like that one, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, husband, bridegroom, declares the Lord in verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Jesus is talking about something that God is going to do. A new covenant that he's going to establish. That will affect our very hearts. No longer just given letters etched in stone. God's going to, going to remove hearts of stone and replace our hearts with new soft hearts of flesh, hearts that have been engraved with God's law. He will give us hearts that are filled with a motivation to obey him, to love like he loves, to uphold the law. Remember what Jesus said, sum up all the law and the prophets? Pharisees want to know, how would you sum it up? rabbi jesus remember what he said later on we'll get there eventually love love the lord your god and love your neighbor as you love yourself um that by the way i would call that grace god's grace teaches us to love from the heart let's let's get systematic for a second let's go to romans Romans 6, 15 to 17, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once enslaved to sin have become obedient from the heart. Galatians. I've just picked out a smattering of, of verses. You, you have to really begin to connect some dots here to get this. Galatians four verses four to seven. But when the fullness of time had come. Galatians 5, 1 through 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, the ex-Pharisee turned apostle, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, let's pause there real quick. Circumcision, do you think the Sabbath is a big deal? Don't even get Paul started on circumcision. Okay, circumcision came way before the Mosaic code. Way before, this is like, uh, I wrote it down, Genesis 17. Abraham's out in the desert and God forms a covenant with Abraham, the father of our faith. He makes a promise to him. A little bit of time goes by, God affirms his promise. He affirms his promise again. And finally, he gives him the sign of circumcision. He says, this will be the sign of the covenant that we have formed. And it's for every generation to come after you and if anyone doesn't take on the sign of circumcision into their flesh the external sign of their membership in my covenant family then let them be cut off no pun intended forever it's just bible it's there circumcision that's a really really big deal So what do we do with that? Let's keep reading. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, by the way, he's writing to Gentiles, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed, again with the puns, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And by the way, baptism is not the new Christian version of circumcision. Okay, a little side note there. God doesn't trade out one external expression of faith for a different external expression of faith. It is a sign of our faith and obedience in Jesus, but it's not the magical symbol that means that we're saved. Just in case your mind is tempted to go there. Galatians five sixteen to 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Like, obey the law. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. doesn't mean you are free to now murder, lie, steal, commit adultery, or ignore the essence of the Sabbath. It just means now you have a heart that's like, it's a bit like, I don't know if you ever see the way my kids act around me, I, I'm convinced that I'm my nine-year-old's very, very best friend in the world. It's a very humbling thing. But he just wants nothing more than to to know that he's loved, that I'm pleased with him, that he's my boy. I'm so proud of him. I adore him. I'd die for him. And he obeys me. It's like he, he wants nothing more than to just, live his life in such a way that says, Papa, you're my hero. I love you so much. Just before the service, I was downstairs just praying by myself. Isaac nowhere's to find me. So he goes into the little office room down there. Yeah, don't, please leave me alone. Now I'm just <laughs> like. So I'm in there. Isaac knows what I'm doing. And he walks up to me. He puts a hand on my shoulder. Papa, can I pray for you? And he prays for me, guys. That's that's the spirit of adoption. Something fundamental happens to our hearts when God's Spirit fills us. This, this is a, we're developing a, um, a theology of the Spirit, a pneumatology. Really, really important for the health of our church. For your life as a follower of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, it what it's what will keep us from getting hard hearts like the Pharisees. What else? What else? Drive up there. Ah, my favorite, Romans seven six. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Do we ignore the law now? Absolutely not. Paul also makes that point. Is the law bad? Absolutely not. What's changed? Our hearts. Our hearts. Romans 5.5 5 says that God pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us, My motivation has changed. It makes all the difference in the world. There was a young man in here with a withered hand, uh, maybe some sort of physical uh, disability. I should feel deep, deep compassion. What if someone came in here, and let's say they were living in a certain way, and um, maybe, maybe it was like obvious, maybe there was like a lifestyle thing, a sexuality thing, an identity thing, and they came in, and somehow you discovered like, ooh, you're sinning. You, you're breaking God's commandments. Um, the Bible is like shockingly clear about how we're to uh, steward the bodies that God has given us. Guys, the Bible says a lot about sex. The Bible says a lot about money. Go figure. It's like life. (laughs) Some of it's very, very explicit. What if someone came in here and there was something about them, and you were like, oh, I'm pretty sure you're in breach of the law? Where do we go from there? Do we throw it down? There's the law conform get in line do it right change or get out because i'm a little indignant with you right now or do we have hearts that are full of god's love and is there an overwhelming sense of compassion that says you know i want to see you healed i don't know what that means necessarily got to kind of take it on a case-by-case basis But at the very outset, what is the motivation to see someone transformed? Let's put it that way. Love. Love. It's the same thing that motivated God to send his son Jesus to die for us, every one of us, despite my ugly rebellion and sin and just messed up thinking. God loved me while I was his enemy and died for me. Suffered for me. Showed me mercy and compassion. It didn't hit me up the side of the head with his law. Oh, I, I knew the law. Law's good. Law's good if, if it wakes you up. Law's good if it causes you to fear God. To realize, oh, I, I, my problem is dire. I need to be rescued. My sin is serious. That's good. That's good. That's the the fear of God. We only begin there. We don't graduate from the fear of God, but we grow in our understanding that God's heart is so full of compassion and mercy, and he's overwhelmingly, unfathomably gracious. You know what angers him? The hard heart of the Pharisee who wants to be it's the word cold about how we apply, interpret, implement, live out God's word as opposed to being compelled by God's love. Now, I don't know where I'm going. How about we just end? This would be a good place to end. This is what uh, is called the new covenant of the spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.6. The new covenant of the spirit. We are set free from simply trying to adhere to the letter. And we're now free to live according to the new way of the spirit. Hearts filled with God, with his love. We are adopted into his family. We are people of great compassion We are people of love. Can we stand together, please? Guys, we're going to respond as we normally do, as is our tradition. By taking communion, and this is a time um, to remember who God is and what he's done for us on the cross. He gave His body, He spilt his blood. This is how. This is how it's possible. How, do, how does God pour out His spirit on a whole planet? He's got to rip heaven wide open. How does God bridge the gap, that separation between perfect, holy God and messed up, broken humanity? He takes the sins of the world upon himself. He closes the gap and he tears the heavens open. And he pours out his spirit on anyone who would repent and put their faith in Jesus. Communion is this simple but very beautiful way of saying yes, 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 please, forgive me. Yes, please, fill me afresh with your spirit. Yes, please, remind me of who I am in Jesus. Let me feel what it's like to be loved. We take the bread and we dip it in the juice and we take it, and that's our way of saying, yes, Lord Jesus. Or if this morning you're like, I want to sign up for all of that. I wanna stop doing life my way. I wanna turn from my sin. I wanna stop trying to define myself. And I wanna follow King Jesus because he is mightier than I. He is mightier than my efforts. He is mightier than my past. He is mightier than my fears. He's mightier than my sin. And I wanna follow him. I wanna know this Jesus. I wanna experience his love. Then go for it. Do it this morning. Turn from your sin and start following the mightier one. Put your faith in Jesus and experience how real his love truly is. And you, you can take communion as well. But you may need to make that choice this morning. You may need to make a quality decision. And I invite you to do so. As the band leads us, I want to invite you to take communion either in that corner where there's a little gluten-free going on, that corner, Or up front, whenever you're ready. You're now listening to Grace City Portland.